0: Hey, good morning, everyone! Again, welcome to Talk to at the Well. And if you're online, welcome. Glad you could join us. Uh, again, I'm I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, yeah, I'm going to do some announcements real quick. Hey, if if uh, if you are watching online or if you're even here, uh, we would invite you to share the the video link on Facebook. It's just a really great way to spread the gospel message to to get the word out that two churches are collaborating and working together, and, and it's just such a good uh, message of the, the unity that's found in the gospel. So um, we also want to invite you into a time of giving. And so um, giving is an, another is, is a continuation of worship. Giving isn't just kind of a one-off or something that we do separate from the rest of our worship gathering. Giving is a part of how we worship God through our our money and our possessions. And so if you're from uh, Tallgrass, you can go to tallgrass.church slash give, give, and then if you're from The Well, you can go to thewellmhk.com slash give, and if you are newer to our communities, like you're newer to this collaboration, uh, we just invite you in to go to, uh, you can go give to the Better Together Fund. And, and that's found online at tallgrasschurch and you just designate Better Together Fund. Now, if you're in person and you would like to give either to that Better Together Fund um, or to uh, either of, of the church communities, Tallgrass has their black box back there, which is, that's a, a, is that a dog bark to like keep away? I don't, there's, there's a guard dog, I think. Um, that's all right. You're testing them out. You're, you're figuring, I, yeah, anyway, maybe it should be a, there's the black box, dun, 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 or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, uh, if you're from the well, we have our joy box in the back. Yes. I love it. So, um, <laughs> that's why I did it last. So, um, also, uh, speaking of better together today, as I mentioned earlier, we have a better together lunch that we would lo- love to invite you to stick around for, or if you're online, uh, uh show up and be a part of that. And so what it is, is we're going to, we've ordered pizza, so pizza is on the way, it's going to be delivered, lots of varieties, and so you just stick around, get to, we'll have a, a few questions to get to know people from the different church community, and and some t- some some things to talk about there, and then Pastor Ben and I are going to be up here at some point to just talk about our our vision for the, the fall, what we're planning on doing together and then uh, ways that, that you can be a part of that, even starting right now. And then it's, there'll be a time of just asking questions. You can ask us anything, about anything. By the way, I'm a Coke Zero guy. So just to get that out of the way, I don't know if you all are Coke or Pepsi. But anyway. Oh, that was, that was we didn't see that one. No, that we, we did we last, last week. Okay, next, I, I spoiled it. So We just want to make sure today, we got it. It's going to be, are you Coke or Pepsi? So you can premeditate on that. and Pray out about it. You want. Anyway, I'm, I'm Coke Zero. And then finally, uh, one of the ways that you can jump into what's going on right now with Tallgrass at the Well is you can join a team. So we would love to invite you to join a team. We have uh, uh, many, many teams that are looking for volunteers to to populate those teams and to serve Jesus and and love uh, new guests and things like that. So we have our children's uh, ministry or our Sprouts ministry that that is always looking for great, wonderful, cheery volunteers to to be a part of that. We're looking for hospitality, people to do coffee and welcoming and things like that. So if you'd love to get involved with that, you can go to the Well's website at thewellmhk.com. and you'll find a, you click on connect, and then you'll find join a team, or there's a yellow card that says put me in coach, we would love to put you in. So uh, with that, Dave, Pastor Dave from Tallgrass is going to preach for us today. He's going to continue our series on First John. I'm really excited. I don't think I've ever heard you preach. No pressure, maybe a little bit of pressure, but anyway, uh, I've heard good things. Yes, he's (laughs) He's done announcements and, and done various things where I know he's a good communicator, so I'm really looking to uh, uh, forward to that. So let me pray for you real Please quick. Please do. And I'll hand it over. So, Father, we, we, again, come before you in the name of Jesus, and we we pray for Pastor Dave. Pray for anointing. Pray for unction. Those those old-time preachers uh, prayed for unction, and that's what we do. We, we pray for him, for the Holy Spirit to, to come upon him, empower him, and speak a fresh message Uh, from the Bible to us today help us to know Jesus through through his words and help us to apply it in in practical ways pray in Jesus name amen amen Amen.
1: thank you Josh all right welcome Uh, like he just said my name is Dave Geldart associate pastor at Tallgrass if I haven't met you yet especially if you're a part of the well or you're just visiting and I'd love to get to know you so feel free to come up and say hi to me uh, while we're munching on pizza or something like that I'd love to get to know you um, but this is the time where uh, if you uh, maybe if you grew up going to church or even if you didn't uh, this is the part that a lot of folks expect so we do we do the songs and then there's announcements and then there's usually a giving announcement and then uh, there's a sermon and so why do we do sermons you ever thought about that why, do you just have to sit through it <laughs> is this like a check the box and you went to church and you sat through the sermon and that's your good work We're pushing in on a little bit. The answer is no, that's not the reason. So we believe that this this book, the Bible, really is God's word to us. And so we wanna know it. We wanna study it together. And so when we gather together, we not only wanna worship uh, God for what he's done, engage him through song, engage him through giving, through talking to one another, but we wanna hear what he says to us. This isn't just a club. We're wanting to get to know God and to hear his words. And so that's why we get to this time and we study God's word together. So uh, if you're with us and you don't have that, uh, that foundational conviction that this is God's word, that's okay, you're invited to be here. Uh, the, all of our gatherings are open and so we would love to chat with you if you have questions uh, but for, uh, for the rest of us, this is, this is a reminder of why we're doing this. So if you have a physical copy of the scriptures, go ahead and get it out. We're gonna be uh, in First John the whole time. If you've got an app on your phone, that works too. Otherwise, it will be on the screen. So uh, today we're going to be in 1 John, we're going to start in 2.28, start in 2.28, so this is going to be the very end of chapter 2, we're going to read the last few verses, then we'll go through 10 verses of 3, so it's going to be two paragraphs, think you can handle it? Three of you can handle it, this is going to be a tough message. All right, so starting uh, chapter 2, verse 28, and now, little children... All right, so as we read this, I want you to maybe good practice anytime you read the scriptures. Don't just try to read it. Stop and ask yourself beforehand to to let yourself be present. Expect to hear God speaking to you. And also pay attention to what's stirring inside you. What what jumps out at you when you read these words? So I I encourage you to do that as well. When we're reading, what jumps out to you? What feelings are you feeling as we read these? It's going to become important. And now, John says to this church that he's writing to, and now, little children, abide in him, in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at shame, or in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him, beloved. We are God's children now, and what we uh, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself, as He is pure. Second half. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and that in him there's no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning since the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So there's a lot in there. So I I think we need to pray one more time and ask God to speak to us. So let's do that right now. Jesus... We trust that you're hearing us right now and uh, we ask that you would speak to us through this part of your word to us. Help us to understand clearly what you're saying to us. Now, will you pray something like that to him for you? All right, Lord, we're gonna jump off a cliff and engage with you in your word in even this word and we trust that you will help us to understand holy spirit you are definitely invited we trust that you're with us all of us who trust in you we know you're in us but we also invite you here to help us to understand your word and to experience your love for us amen all right so fear is one of the most powerful emotions right you guys have experienced fear before perhaps none of you Uh, I've experienced fear before, so it's one of the you know it, it, it's the part of our brain, our limbic system, deep inside, right in the middle, some of the most primal parts of us, and it's it's really powerful. So it's it it, it can be really helpful. It signals when there's danger around or when we feel like we might uh, be in danger. Um, one of my earliest memories is actually one of fear. I, I don't know, I was maybe four or something like that. And I I have this distinct memory of getting up in the middle of the night and I had to pee and I had to go to the bathroom. And so as I got up and the lights were off and no one else was up, I remember uh, this flash of a scene. I, I I was heading to the bathroom, but the problem was I had to go by the opening to the living room and the lights were off in the living room. And I had this distinct feeling of fear as I looked into that darkness and I couldn't see the back. And I was convinced that there was an alligator in there coming to get me. It is, it's funny. I was convinced that there was an alligator. It's not altogether unreasonable because uh, we lived in Beaufort, South Carolina. That's where I was born, right on the coast. And our backyard was a tidal marsh. And I had recently learned that at some point, an alligator had actually crawled up through our backyard and gotten into the neighbor's yard across the street. So I was afraid of alligators. And I was convinced that if I went pee, I was exposed to danger, right? (laughs) Right? So fear, sometimes it's uh, founded, sometimes it's not. That one maybe wasn't totally founded. I was afraid nonetheless. Uh, another f- scene, in, as a young adult in college, I was visiting my brother in Bolivar, Bolivar Missouri at his uh, college. And uh, we had uh, hiked into this place where we found this, it had to be an old reservoir, or a mining uh, quarry or something like that it had been filled with water. And so there was really steep, high rock cliffs going down into the water below. And I remember as I stood right at the edge, of this, I don't know, 50-plus-foot cliff going down into the dark water below, I experienced fear. Can you imagine why I might have experienced fear? There's something inside my brain, deep inside, saying, do not jump. You will die. (laughs) You don't know what's under that water. There could be rocks. You could never get back up. Who knows what's down there? You could die. And that's somewhat reasonable. And of course, because of peer pressure, I jumped nonetheless. And I didn't die. But there could have been rocks under there. Who knows? So fear, it, it, it's like if you're in a car, fear doesn't make a great driver, but it's a really reliable, it's a really important warning light on your dashboard. It's, it's on the dash and it's flashing at you and it's trying to tell you something important. Whether founded or not, whether uh, connected to something real or imagined, whether correctly interpreted or not, your fear is telling you something and it's important to pay attention, right? So if you're... Um, uh, let's see. If, if it's founded in something imp- uh, real, it'll help you stay on course. If it's founded in something not real, it's still important because it'll t- uh, take you off course. So we need to pay attention to fear and figure out what it's telling us. Um, I imagine that many of you perhaps, connected with fear at at least one or two points when we read that passage that we just read from First John. I did. It's okay if you didn't, but I did. Two main points of fear that I identified with was first of all, the fear that I might have to shrink in shame from Jesus when he comes back. And the second one was the fear that maybe my sin as a Christian evidences that I'm not a true Christian or disqualifies me in some way. Could you relate to either of those? You don't have to say it out loud. I related to that. So today we're gonna lean into both of these areas of fear and hear what God would say to each of us. And we're gonna discover, uh, like Sarah last week when Sarah preached, she told us where we were going at the beginning. I kind of like that. This is where we're going. We're gonna discover that actually God wants to help us to move through our fear into a place of living hope in Christ. He wants to turn on the lights in that living room and help us discover what's truly there. Um, So when there's a problem passage like these, like this is a problem passage, When there's a problem, we have three main options. When we're reading the scriptures and there's something we don't understand or something that seems weird or that makes us afraid, or maybe it doesn't seem like it fits, we have three main options. First option is just ignore it, right? Just ignore it, you know? I'm just going to keep on going. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to put a little sticky note over that light on my dashboard that says check engine, right? Maybe some of you have done this. I'm going to ignore it and hope it gets better. And for the short run, sometimes that is helpful. You don't notice anything. But then eventually you will be in the middle of Kansas nowhere and your car will seize up because you are totally out of oil. And that's going to be a big problem. So in the same way with our faith, when we come across problem passages and we have a response of fear, if we don't lean into it, ultimately it erodes our faith over time. Other option is to go into the other ditch and to freak out and say, well, the Bible says it, therefore I must believe it. Even if it sounds terrible, even if it doesn't square with my experience, even if it doesn't square with some other things I read in the scriptures, I gotta believe it. And so you just bravely and blindly say, that must be it. And you try to live your life that way in fear. That's another option. Now I wanna invite you into a third option this morning, which is do some Bible study. Lean in, take some time to look a little deeper and hope Assume that maybe your interpretation is the thing that's a problem. Maybe your interpretation is not quite right. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? So um, as we look at our passage... Uh, let's see, we're gonna just do some Bible basics. We're gonna look at this problem passage and we're gonna do three main things as we encounter any problem passage. And we try to walk the the middle line of doing some biblical interpretation. Number one, you look at the biblical context of the passage. Uh, What does the rest of the book that you're reading say about this? Does it speak about it? It might be helpful if it clarifies it other places. What, What does the rest of the Bible talk about? Does it speak about this? Maybe even in a little bit clearer way other places? Just good Bible study. So this is gonna be uh, helpful to you, hopefully, no matter what passage you're reading. Second of all is linguistic context, the language. What do the words actually say? Did I read it too fast? Did I actually put some words in there that aren't there? Or do maybe the words have a range of meaning if you look them up in a Bible dictionary that allow you to maybe take it a different way? And then finally, historical context. What's going on in the history? The people that this was written to in that time, back then and there, what's going on in that culture? What, what's going on in the, in the context of the people that uh, this was getting uh, read, read to and written to? might help inform us. So let's go ahead and we'll just look at our passage. The primary bulk, we're gonna be in uh, four through 10, four through 10 of uh, chapter three. So it appears to say that true Christians don't sin. That's what it appears to say. It appears to say that if you do sin as a Christian that it evidences that you're not really a child of God or maybe that you're at least a second class citizen and that you need to be afraid that when Jesus comes back you might be ashamed in front of him because of your sin. And so that's a big fear, right? If that's that's the right interpretation, that's scary. That would be a big fear and that interpretation has caused a lot of problems through the years for a lot of people and maybe for you. Maybe you didn't even know this verse specifically, but you've grown up or had a sense, maybe someone even told you that you can't sin as a Christian. Christians don't sin. We don't do that here. And that if you do, maybe you're not a real Christian. Maybe you've gotten that sense. So let's lean in. Biblical context. Let's do some biblical context here. First of all, If the Bible really is a unified story that's written ultimately by God, then he's not gonna contradict himself, right? That's just kind of a good basic assumption. And if you're interested in why we would assume that about this word, about the word, why we can trust that the Bible is reliable, I would invite you to lean into that. That's actually a really important question for you to have and to answer. Uh, We actually gave a teaching at Tallgrass Church a few years ago um, in June of 2018 called, um, oh, what was it called? It was called... I preach to the Dutch, Why believe the Bible? So if you go to tallgrass.church and search why believe the Bible, that one will come up. Lots of reasons, uh, objective reasons why we should be able to trust the Bible. I'll tr- also try to link that when we post this online. But if it is reliable, uh, then it won't contradict itself. We can look at the rest of scripture to uh, help clarify. Maybe, maybe somewhere else, especially if this theme is repeated over and over and it's more clear other places, that'll be, that'll be helpful. It turns out that, believe it or not, the Bible speaks a lot about this, about this fear, about what does a Christian have to do with their sin? And uh, what does God think about those who have trusted in Jesus and yet still sin afterwards? What does he think about that? So we're going to just look at a few. We're just going to take a sample of three, just because it's everywhere and it's pretty consistent. So we'll start in in the book we're in, 1 John. So in chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, John himself affirms that true Christians actually can and do keep sinning sometimes. So uh, in verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He's talking to Christians. And the truth isn't in us. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him, Jesus, to be a liar, and his word isn't in us. So John seems to think, at the beginning of this book, that anyone, even including Christians who claim not to have sin, are a liar and self-deceived. Let's look at a few others. Uh, Another New Testament author, James. Another uh, leader writing to a church, he says the same thing. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. This is chapter three, verse two. He's writing to Christians. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle uh, his whole body. And so the, uh, the language uh, context there is, the assumption is no one is like that. Of course, we all sin. No one is a perfect man. And so he, even if he had said, you all struggle in many ways, it would still help us to see that James thinks that Christians can and do struggle with sin. But he includes himself in there. He says, we, I'm so glad. Even he is a seasoned Christian leader. He ropes himself in. He says, we all struggle in many ways, even in our Christian life. That's very hopeful and helpful. Paul says the same thing, probably the most famous New Testament author, another uh, church planter and a skeptic turned uh, church planter who wrote the book of Romans. And he said in chapter 7, He's reflecting on, uh, on the inward battle and it, as a, a seasoned Christian leader. And see if you can resonate with this. Starting in 15 of 7, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For what I do not want, I do that very thing I hate. I don't do what I want. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. That's what I keep on doing. Isn't that encouraging to hear? I resonate with that. You don't have to raise your hand, but can you resonate with that? I feel like he's describing the nature of an even addictive nature of sin, feeling stuck and you can't get out, even as a seasoned Christian leader. So we're in good company, perhaps. So if John doesn't mean that, if he's not meaning this, what does he mean? All right, so Bible study point number two, we go to the linguistics, the literary context. We look at the words in the passage. So if we take a closer look, it's pretty clear that John is actually not talking about Christians uh, who uh, commit occasional sins. Uh, Notice that three times this phrase, uh, yeah, practice sinning, practice sinning, uh, make a practice of sinning. That comes up over and over. So uh, he seems like he's uh, not talking about just one-offs or every so often. He's talking about a practice. So if I blow up at my son when he does something wrong and I yell in anger at him, that's bad. What if I make a practice of doing it? What if I'm even intentionally practicing doing that, thinking that that's good? That's like extra bad, right? That's, that's a different animal. That's like morally reprehensible. Um, and then... Uh, practices lawlessness. He talks about lawlessness, but he keeps talking about practicing, those who practice lawlessness. So lawlessness, the word here, it says lawlessness is sin, but lawlessness is an even more powerful word. Lawlessness is a complete rejection of the biblical ethics. And so throw the whole thing away. I'm not gonna do that. And so lawlessness um, would be not only uh, would I say, yeah, I, I yelled at my son and I shouldn't do that. I did it, but man, I shouldn't have done that. And I feel sorry. That's one thing. But what if I said, yeah, not only is that good, but I actually feel really good about it. Like, I'm actually trying to practice that. Right? I would hope some of you guys would come talk to me. That would not be, uh, that would not be good parenting 101. If I were to say that yelling at my kid is the enlightened way to live, we should have Problems. Okay, so uh, we're, still, we're still building the case here on how our interpretation might not have been right. I think we're, we're starting to see that. And then let's uh, round this out here with the historical context, the cultural context. What was going on here? Who are these false teachers that he says in seven, let no one deceive you, right? So there's there's people coming in to deceive. And and so if you've been tracking with us through some of these other teachings in 1 John, you've heard, you might remember the context that John is writing to this church that's being harassed by these new teachers that are coming in, claiming to be Christians, and yet they're teaching them something different than John had taught them. In fact, they were teaching that um, Jesus wasn't the Messiah and that actually you should sin. It's actually the enlightened folks who prove that they're not bound by these rules and regulations that uh, evidence their enlightenment by by living a lifestyle of sin. And these people were the Gnostics. So Gnostics with a G, Gnostics. So maybe you've never heard of Gnostics, Gnostics, but it's a Greek word, G, Gnosis, means knowledge. So these people thought they had the secret knowledge that would save them, Gnostics. I'll give you a little, uh, we're, we're, we're going to give just, I don't know, a little five minute here, a little, maybe hopefully less, a little teaching about Gnostics. Because as you'll see, hopefully, what the Gnostics believed is alive and well today, just under, under different names. Gnosticism never died. And it's here It's one of the foundations of a lot of our cultural stuff here in America and in evangelical America. In Christian church, a lot of these things are alive and well. So hopefully you'll be able to see as we keep studying this that this word is very applicable to us today in our church. So Gnostics. All right, so Gnosticism, Gnostics. These are people who believe that uh, they, they were dualists. Dualism means that the physical is bad, or at, at least unimportant, but the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. So what really matters is the spiritual and the, the physical doesn't matter. They actually believed that the physical world was accidentally created by an evil lower deity called Yahweh, who was the God of the Old Testament, and that God the Father never intended this um, fallen matter to be created. He didn't, he didn't, this stuff is, is gross and debased. And so uh, God the Father, actually, salvation looks like finding enlightenment, Figuring out the secret knowledge that that's true and that the whole point of life is to escape from the physical, escape from this life and live a pure, holy, spirit only, disembodied existence with God the Father. Okay, so uh, Gnostics believe that not on, uh, only were our bodies uh, debased, but what we did with them were unimportant because they were really just the prison for our true self. See if this sounds familiar. The true self of you is the inner light, the inner part of you. We need to discover ourselves and you need to learn to listen to yourself, to see inside because the real you is what you're feeling inside. The things you want, the things you think and feel, that's the real you. And you need to find you by looking within. And at the end of the day, what you do with your body doesn't matter. If what you want is what, your body, what you can do with your body, you should probably do that, that's fine. What you do with your body doesn't matter. Um, so they, it, all of that stuff led them to deny that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was not God incarnate. Because why would God the Father come and put on flesh? That's the opposite of what he's trying to do. Um, they also denied that, um, that, that Jesus was ever resurrected. Because the whole point was to get killed and get, get freed from your body. So Jesus wasn't actually physically resurrected. Maybe in a metaphorical sense. Jesus didn't die um, as God, and he didn't—he wasn't physically resurrected. Uh, let's see what else here. Uh, yeah, again, the main goal of life is to escape this life and to enter this disembodied, pure, heavenly realm. So do what you feel, because what you do with your body doesn't matter. Uh, Gnosticism—we see it show up in a few places in early church history, and even in the rest of the scriptures. So in uh, Romans chapter two, God, Jesus is speaking to the churches. And he has some really harsh words to say about these Nicolaitans who were in and around the vicinity of Ephesus. And we know from other, uh, other, uh, other early church writings that the Nicolaitans were Gnostics. These were, these were Gnostic followers because they were actually trying to get the church in Ephesus to start living sexually immoral lives to prove that they were saved. Okay. So Jesus wasn't a real, real fan. Also, uh, early church historians, early church fathers, Ignatius, uh, Irenaeus, uh, they wrote this uh, uh, treatise called Against Heresies, big, big uh, treatise against Gnosticism, and they they specifically named Sorinthus, which we know from other writings, he was a well-known Gnostic leader, and he not only practiced sexual immorality, but he taught that Christians should practice sexual immorality, like we've already said, to evidence their enlightenment, to prove that they were saved. So against this backdrop, you might see why they would be causing problems in this church that John is writing to, right? Especially if they're coming in, claiming to speak for God and teaching them that this is actually the truth. So you can imagine how these folks' confidence in Christ, their confidence in their right standing with God would be shaken Especially if they were pretty good preachers, right? So you've got to be aware of really good preachers. So all this study helps us to see, I think, that what John is talking about in our future passage, it isn't actually maybe what it seems at first reading when we read it in 21st century America without some of this background. John's main point is not that true Christians cannot sin after they become Christians, or that you become a second-class citizen once you you, uh, start sinning or if you struggle with sin as a Christian. He's not saying that when Christ comes back, that if you Christians, if you still struggle with sin, you need to be ashamed and afraid when Jesus comes back for him to find you in that state. What's he actually saying? He's starting to feel it. He's saying, don't believe the Gnostics. Don't believe these guys, these false teachers who are coming in and telling you this is the way you need to be saved and this is what you need to do to have assurance. You don't need to live a sexually immoral life. You don't have to believe that God hates the physical and only loves the spiritual and that what you do with your body doesn't matter. Actually, you don't have to be afraid that when Jesus comes back, he's gonna be mad at you because you're being sinful and not believing what the Gnostics tell you. In fact, I think it's maybe diabolically ironic that this passage has caused so many Christians to be afraid over the years, to be afraid. When, in fact, it was originally written, and the correct interpretation is, John is trying to encourage Christians that you don't have to be afraid of what these false teachers are teaching you. He wants to encourage us. You don't have to be afraid. Little flock, don't be afraid. Jesus loves you. And you don't have to start doing this new thing. You don't have to seek after this new enlightenment and this new way of life that's actually just an old way of life of throwing off all restraints and living a sexually immoral life. You don't have to believe that, uh, that you're not actually gonna get resurrected because Jesus wasn't resurrected. No, you can be assured now. You can eagerly, eagerly anticipate his return and your resurrection because it's true. Are you guys seeing that? It's cool if you're not, but that's, that's what I'm seeing. So what about you? Where do you find yourself in connection with this passage, with the topic of fear, maybe some of the fears we specifically listed? Can you relate to that at all? Maybe if you're hearing my voice right now, whether online or here, maybe you can relate to feeling like, okay, I, I, I have chosen to follow Christ, but I still struggle with sin. I, I still am actually really struggling with sin. I don't want to, but I am. And I feel like God hates me. Or maybe God's really mad at me. Or maybe I'll never become a real Christian. Maybe I'll always be this second class citizen that just kind of skates by and that never really gets there, never really gets it. And ultimately, I'm always going to be two people. And there's no hope for me because I had the thing that I thought would fix it and it hasn't. I can relate to that even as a young believer sitting in church and realizing that I struggled greatly with sexual immorality and I didn't know how to get out. And I'll always be two people, I thought. I'll never get out. Because I I knew this passage. I grew up in the church. I accepted Christ at the age of seven, honestly and truly. I knew, and I was still struggling with sin. And I was never, ever gonna be able to get out, I thought. So maybe you can uh, uh, resonate with that in some way. So if if that's you, if you... um, you resonate with that in any way if you're afraid that God hates you or is mad at you or has rejected you I want you to hear from God's own mouth this morning that's not true it's not true you've been scared by something that isn't true it's not just scary it's false God wants to turn the light on in that living room and show you not only is there no alligator in there but your heavenly father is in there and he loves you and he heard you get up and he knew you had to pee. <laughs> and he's, he's wanting to hold you in his arms and, and take away your fear. And he wants you to feel your head pressed against his, against his chest and for him to speak his words of comfort to you and saying, You're my child. I love you. I'm so sorry you have to pee. And thought there was an alligator. I mean, we're being a little lighthearted about this, but I think you get it. This stuff can get really serious and really deep. But the heart of the Father is to love you and to calm your fears. Here, in his words, uh, in John, the, the book we're in, First John chapter 2, my beloved, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. But if you do, when you do, don't be afraid. Why? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. You've got an advocate, and not just the court-appointed lawyer that sucks, You've got the best lawyer of all time. You've actually got the one who's already served time for you and is there to take double jeopardy, already paid for. We have an advocate, Christ Jesus, who is on your team and who's working hard on your behalf. He is the propitiation, the payment, the satisfaction for your sins. Paul in Romans 5, verse 8, he says, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, he came and died for us to pay for the penalty for our sin." Eight one of Romans, therefore, there's now no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The cup of wrath for your sin that God was holding, rightly so, was poured out and drunk to the dregs, to the crusty, crunchy stuff at the bottom. Jesus drunk that on the cross on your behalf, and there's nothing left. It's not like it was drained when you first became a Christian, then you start filling it up again. That is Gnostic teaching at, at, at least. It's not the way Christ sees it. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen to that. And in our passage today, 1 John 3, he starts out. God demonstrates, where are we at here? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Not that he just is trying to get us out of this world. That we would be called children of God now. So we are now. So if you are in Christ, if you believe Jesus is God's son, come to save you, and that his death on the cross pays for your sins, you are his beloved son and daughter. No matter how smart you are, no matter how many nasty things you've done in the past, no matter what sin you struggle with now, you're his beloved son and beloved daughter, and he's moved heaven and earth to get close to you, and that's not gonna change. So maybe you're here this morning, and that's what you need to hear, or maybe you're here this morning, and you need to hear That actually your fear of meeting Christ is based somewhat on truth. You've never put your hope in him. You've never accepted him as your Lord and asking asking him to forgive you. And so rightly so, you should still be afraid because you're in your sins. And you've never taken the free gift of eternal life through Christ. So if that's you this morning, I invite you, stop it. I invite you, lean in and accept the free gift of life that's offered to you. The free gift of forgiveness through Christ. It can be yours. All you have to do, even in the quiet of your own heart, is tell Jesus in your own words that you believe that he can save you and that he wants to forgive you and you want in. That's all you have to do. So how can we build confidence? How can we build confidence in these last few minutes here as we end? God wants us to have confidence in Christ. Um, let's see, where am I at here? First one. We've got objective assurance and subjective assurance. So this is, uh, this is true uh, across the board. God wants you to know that you're his child. And objectively, he wants you to know this, where are we at here, through his word. So this is objective in the sense that even when you're not having the feels, this is true. So it's like, think about a coloring sheet. You've got the black outlines, the thick black outlines of the picture. So even if there's no color in the middle, you know exactly what that picture is. Even if you're not having the feels, even if you haven't colored it in yet. It's exactly what God's word is for you. And so for some of you, you've leaned so much maybe into experiential um, uh, engagement with Christ, but you, you're lacking in your objective foundation. You don't know God's word in a way that actually grounds you and founds you and puts boundaries in, around your life in a way that brings you peace and hope. So uh, uh, God wants you to, to know his word so that he, you can hear from him objectively how you are forgiven and you're his son if you're in Christ. Uh, next, there's subjective assurance, things that are the feels. So uh, a, a healthy life in Christ has subjective and objective assurance. So the experience with God, you can live on just objective assurance, but it's not great. That's not the life God wants for you. And so maybe if that's you this morning, if you're feeling that, hear that God has a, has a plan for your life to help you to incorporate the, uh, the stuff that you're missing. You're not stuck. So this is like the color, the, the, the crayon maybe, or the colored pencils if you're a little bit more advanced. I prefer the colored pencils. This is the colored pencils to start coloring in and put color and life and vitality and fun and realness into your relationship with God. This is the personal relationship with God stuff that people talk about. Having subjective experiences with God. They're not enough on their own to build a life on, but they bring the light. They bring the fullness. So, uh, God wants you to know what's true. So he promises that when his spirit comes to live in you, that that spirit will bear witness to what is true. So you kind of have this sense that when you hear something, as the God's spirit continues to uh, grow in you and to grow uh, confidence in you, you'll have a sense that man, that just doesn't feel right. Even if you can't fully put words to it or a scripture yet. He starts to help you to know what's not true and also, man, that's I think that's really true. It's really helpful to know what's true. Uh, Second, the scriptures uh, teach us that uh, God starts to sensitize our conscience. The things that we used to be able to do, and they didn't really bother us. Now they start bothering us more and more. These things that didn't even cause you to bat an eye. Now God starts to bring a sense in you that that's not the life he has for me, and that wasn't good. So we're not talking about shame here. We're talking about a conviction of sin, it's not saying you are bad. It's saying you're not living in line with what I have for you. Come back. Come back. And so actually the sensitization of your conscience is an evidence that you are in Christ. Some of us hate this thing. We hate it. We hate feeling bad about things. But God wants you to know that actually it's his sons that he disciplines. Hebrews 12 says "My Ill, the illegitimate children, their father never disciplines them. But it's it's the legitimate children, those who are actually sons and daughters, that get disciplined by their father in love. Maybe we need to reclaim this one as a way to experience God's assurance in our life. Just a few more here, as we end. Experience God's love. So God wants you to experience His love for you. So for me, this happens in, uh, primarily in an emotional uh, reaction to things, like when I'm reading the scripture and something like I read something about how God loves me, and I have an emotional reaction. And that's difficult for me because I learned pretty early on that I, if I shut down my emotions, I can kind of protect myself from pain. And so that kind of worked for a little while. Problem was I ended up desensitizing myself from most all of my emotions. And so my life has been about trying to find them again and bring them back. And for so much of my Christian life, I've despaired of feeling like God was close. I despaired of having this e- emotional connection with Christ, this assurance that's based on uh, an emotional experience. And it, it, it's, been, it's been difficult. But to the extent that I've been engaging with emotional health, I've been starting to hear his voice and experiencing these things more. God wants you to experience his love for you through a song, a worship song. Or with me, it's usually when I'm under the stars. There's something about being under the stars that God just affirms his love for me. Usually I cry. That's one of the few times in life I I cry. That's good. Another one we're going to talk about in a few weeks, so we're not going to talk about this one today, is that you have an increasing love for others who love Christ, even if they annoy the hell out of you right, there's something inside you that realizes I have a deep connection with this person. So we're, we're going to talk more about that in a, in a few weeks when we get into chapter four. So again, God wants you to experience his assurance. So as, as the band comes up and as we kind of uh, just lean into application, I want you to pick one of these. So application with our head, our heart, and our hands. Which one are you, do you feel like is the next step for you? Our head. You need to study God's word, his objective word. So that you can know why he he says in his word that you're a believer, that you're safe and secure in him. Uh, For some folks need to grow in heart engagement with this stuff. You need to take steps to experience God by becoming more emotionally healthy. Again, to the extent that you are emotionally healthy is the extent to which you can experience God emotionally. And so for me, becoming more emotionally healthy has been the avenue, the opening to starting to experience God more and hear his voice. And then finally, with your hands, I want you to share about your experiences of assurance with one another. Not right now, but maybe around your tables later. Like, what are some things that help you to experience God's love or make you feel like God loves you or remind you that you really are his, his son or daughter? Share those with one another so that we can start talking about him. This can be a real encouragement. So, uh, will you pray with me as we go ahead and close? Jesus, We trust and we believe that when you tell us in your word that you love us, that that's true. But we also want assurance in our own heart. We want to experience both in our mind and in our heart that you're speaking to us and that you're real. So I invite you specifically for those of us who feel like that that seems far away or we've been afraid or we've like almost lost hope that we will be able to experience a personal relationship with you that really connects. Lord, I pray that you would bring hope, bring a living hope into our hearts through Christ because you remind us that you can resurrect and that you can bring new life where there was none. You can can do that for us. So I pray that you would uh, speak to each of us this morning and give us that confidence and that you would grow that in us. Amen. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.